0: Welcome to the Nerd Dungeon Podcast, where we explore the various catacombs of media and entertainment. From manga and anime, to books, games, and TV, we explore it all, one corridor or hidden room at a time. I am your dungeon guide, Phantom Eldrith. And today, we will be talking about another anime. Today, specifically, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite genres of anime, Isekai. By the title of the world's best assassin, gets reincarnated in another world as an aristocrat. It is an adaptation of a light novel, like a lot of them are, written by Rui Tsukio. The greatest assassin on Earth knew only how to live as a tool for his employers, until they stopped letting him live. Reborn by the grace of a goddess into a world of swords and sorcery, He's offered a chance to do things differently this time around. But there's a catch. He has to eliminate a super powerful hero who will bring about the end of the world unless he is stopped. Now, as Lug Tuahade, the master assassin, certainly has his hands full. Particularly because of all the beautiful girls who constantly surround him. Lug may have been an incomparable killer, but how will he face against foes with powerful magic? So that's the synopsis. Uh, that's the synopsis, and let me just say, in a world where there is so many different kinds of isekai anime out there, this one definitely takes an interesting spin on the process. Normally, the person reincarnated, with a few ex- exceptions of course, are the ones destined to be the hero and basically save the world however in this one it is not necessarily the opposite but basically who who calls in a person to kill the person destined to be the hero and they're gonna there are some caveats of course that i'm gonna get into when i go over the first three episodes of this but yeah this is definitely like a, a very interesting take on the uh, the isekai genre or the isekai plotline, especially since also uh, another interesting thing, or at least another, what's the word I'm looking for? Another common trope is that the person that's being reincarnated has no real skills from their past world to be brought over into this one. This character has a an entire lifespan of a very particular set of skills that he must then translate into the world that he's going into, incorporate the different aspects of that world. It's magic, it's swordsmanship, the the technology or the magic. No, I'm going to go with technology cuz technology is not just computers, it's also what people use to make progress in the world. So the the technology and his social connections there in order to build himself up, to be able to take on the person who is undoubtedly the most powerful person in that world. And it's an interesting concept. And so let me just state first off that they, let's take a look here, the studios that are working on this, there's actually two of them, uh, Silverlink, which has done series. You know what? I'm I'm looking on my anime list right now, and I'm looking at the titles that Silverlink has worked on, and I can kind of see why I like this show. It's got a number of Isekai titles under its belt, so that's one thing. You might recognize some of their work being Baka to Test, Summon the Beast, Chivalry of a Failed Knight, Masamune-kun's Revenge, Death March to a Parallel World, if you were into that one, and The Magician's Grandson, and quite a few others. Oh, also, damn it! what is the English version of this one? Also, My Next Life as a Villainess. So, a lot of good ones that I enjoy, some other ones that I didn't, uh, some other series I didn't like as much, but Silverlink has a number of Good ones under their belt, and they're also partnered with Studio Palette, who I haven't heard that much of, but it doesn't look like they've been working on a lot, or at least anything notable for the most part. So it's interesting to see like a a veteran studio working with one with less experience, and they came together to put a really so far a good looking series. All right, so. Just to go over some of the main characters real quick, or at least the ones that have presented themselves so far in the series, you have the assassin that will soon be known as Lug Tuahade. and I I say that for a number of reasons, which I will get into later. Then you have Lug's parents, Keon and Ezri Tuahade. then you have Dia, who is or will be Lug's magic teacher, and... Tarte, a girl who ends up becoming Luke's servant and protege, and the the goddess herself who summons the assassin and reincarnates him into Luke. And I don't want to say much about these characters now because I do want to get into the plot of the first three episodes themselves, and I'll kind of or try to go in-depth on those characters as they were being presented to me. So episode one kind of opens up very interestingly. It uh, it does one of episode one kind of does one of those things. You know, you know the you know the style where they show you basically the present or the future, and then they kind of snap back to before Luke gets reincarnated into Luke. And so it starts off with showing this very elegant looking, I want to say manner, yeah, this elegant looking manner and this man dressing up this girl, putting makeup on her, but the girl ends up crying. And then it turns out that this isn't like some fancy party that's happening. This is a human trafficking, like slave auction. And it specifically is a slave auction for like young girls being sold to these old men in masks, which is run by this, I wanna say not middle aged, but you know, Fairly adult, just reaching out of her prime woman, who had apparently been the one who had orchestrated the kidnapping and or the abduction of these girls, which involves burning down the villages that they they live in in different parts across the country. And one of the slaves, as she's being brought up, actually ends up being the character Dia, who. I guess, incidentally, why am I lost on words today? Uh, Incidentally, she ends up infiltrating the slave auction as a would-be slave. And as she makes her way to basically the stage of the auction, she uses magic to uncuff herself, summon a gun, and starts just pod-shotting everyone running around through the crowd. Then the maid that was make- doing the makeup for the other girl ends up being Tarte or Tarte. I think I'm just gonna call her Tart from now on. Uh, just to keep things simple. And they basically by themselves clear out the entire room while Lug is miles I wanna say miles away. He is decently away with a what appears to be a magically constructed uh, sniper rifle with another character who we have not actually gotten a chance to know yet. And he lines up a shot as the ringleader of the slave auction, the woman I was telling you about before, starts to the runaway, and the, does this really smooth cut from that moment to the assassin that will soon be known as Luke taking out a bunch of these mafia members in the middle of a desert alongside a woman who is apparently his assistant. And so then Lou's former self, I'm just going to call him the veteran assassin, is finishing up this assignment, which is to kill a certain number of these organization members and leave. And he's also training this individual, this assistant that he has, who is apparently a novice fresh out of training with the organization that they're working for. And in these early discussions, or in these discussions with her, there are a lot of different things that kind of paint the ideals that this veteran carries as an assassin. He believes, uh, he tells her that we're tools to the organization. And because of that, he's cut emotions off from himself. Saying that assassins don't need emotions, they, they only get in the way of the job. And this is over basically a series of events from when they're finishing up the assassination to apparently getting caught by a random drone flying through the sky. And then being chased by, I guess, a border patrol. It seems or appears to be that they're in a foreign country with a desert landscape they escape very artfully and they basically spend the night in waiting till the next day to travel that way the drones will pick up their heat signatures which would be easier to do at night so during this time that they are hiding out and getting some rest before their travel the next day we do get insight into how the vet became an assassin and why he's so loyal to the organization and it's mostly because he was born and raised into the organization as i had mentioned before he had been trained since he was young to learn to kill and because he had always been with the organization he has had no real regrets in life in this moment he didn't think about doing anything other than being an assassin and he actually had some level of gratitude for the organization to raise him in such a way He has a lot of pride in the work that he does and in the fact that he is what he considers to be the organization's greatest tool there's also like this very really interesting bit when he's kind of like mocking his assistant calling her a novice and basically kind of like having this arrogant attitude toward her despite the fact that she allegedly was at the top of her class and they had this really cool scene where he like points her gun at her face she doesn't know how he got the gun she can't really explain how how he got the gun and it was just like this very interesting teaching moment that can only be done by an assassin to an assassin basically it was a a way to teach her not to be so trusting in a situation that they're in to even claim that he his whole thing of retiring was just like a lie and that he was planning on killing her and like he had the gun cocked and loaded and ready to fire and everything and then he just he kind of just like grilled her a little bit more and then stopped put the gun on safety mode handed it back to her and she tried to pull the same shit to him and he's like (laughs) he's laying down sleeping and she was like i thought you're not supposed to trust anybody he's like you don't think I? She was like, "You don't think I'll shoot?" He's like, "It's not that you won't shoot; you can't shoot." And then he just takes out the bullets, or he just like he opens his hand. Yeah, he opens his hand and drops the bullets that would have been in her gun. And he was like, "You should have paid attention to the weight of the gun. You should have known that you didn't have any uh, that your gun was empty. Why would I give a loaded gun to a person that I just threatened?" Is what he says. And this is kind of brings about like another major lesson or an ideal that he has in his life, which is if you're a professional, don't trust anyone about anything. And that scene leads into the next day where they make it back to their hideout and they get new papers and new identification. And the I don't want to say his boss, but his contact, his contact informs him of his new identification and that he's to board a plane heading for Japan, where he is meant to train other assassins, and to bring his and to bring his assistant along with him. However, on this plane ride, uh, the plane seems to begin to malfunction, and the guy next to him conveniently pulls out a phone, in which there's already a news uh, a news segment on saying how the plane has been hijacked, and that apparently the. People that hijacked the plane were planning to ram it or basically fly it into notable buildings. They don't say any buildings specifically, but I think that might just be the writing saying, we don't really want to pinpoint anything specific, but we do want to let you know that the buildings are of some importance. And then when the assassin gets to the front of the plane to see what is up, uh, there was a bomb planted, I guess, in the cockpit of the plane, which killed the pilots. And then a fighter jet comes through and passed. And assuming that they're looking inside and seeing the assassin in there, which would confirm their suspicions of it being hijacked, then proceeds to fall back and shoot a missile at the plane, effectively killing this guy. And as he's getting ready to die, He, on one hand, is like, oh man, this is a very epic way to go. But then as he's dying, again, he's feeling those frustrations of being betrayed by people that he trusted and living his life for people that didn't really... ultimately didn't give a fuck about him. Like, if you train a person to... Like, it doesn't... It it really kind of doesn't make sense that they do that either. I mean, I know it's not important because this is supposed to lead into more of a bigger story, but how the fuck do you train someone so well, and then just decide to kill them, and not... Not only is he, like, he's the... He's allegedly the best assassin in the world. Why would you not want him to train more assassins for your organization? But, it is what it is. I'm, I'm assuming it's because, like, oh, well, the people that trained him were good enough, so we'll just keep doing that method, and living at that. But I digress. So in this fit of regret. His soul was then picked up by a goddess. Who laughs at the fact that he got killed. In an ironic way. And offers him a chance at a rebirth. In another world of sword and sorcery. With all of his memories intact. And the only condition she has. Is that he has to kill the hero. And so then that's basically the end of the first episode leading into the second episode where we pick off immediately right where we left off from the first one. And the goddess just goes into more detail about the job that she has for him, which entails that he's allowed to do whatever he wants as long as he does, in fact, end up killing the hero, which he has to do before his 18th birthday, or not 18th birthday, before uh, 18 years after his birth, because it's going to be around that time that the hero will then have destroyed the world. However, he cannot kill the hero before he's already defeated the Demon Lord. Otherwise, again, the world would be destroyed. She, re- she reiterates the spiel of it being a world of sword and sorcery. She gives him an overview or like a, a quick mind-melding of the information or overview of the world and how magic works. And then she kind of, to give an explanation of why he's killing the hero, she explains that after the demon lord is defeated, the hero ends up plunging the world into chaos which will lead to the world's destruction. Also to, I guess, put into perspective, the hero is supposed to be the strongest person in the world, period. There is nobody that's going to allegedly be stronger than him. And even though this character is being reincarnated, he is not allotted the same level of power that the hero has. So this assassin must defeat the hero with as much power as physically and magically allotted a more or less average person in the world. So he's basically on the road to be the strongest normal person, if that makes any sense. And so to ensure that this is the case, the goddess gives him some caveats. She allows him to obtain any five skills of his choice which are all divided by different class, like S rank, A rank, B rank, C rank, D rank. And these, and while these, this is important because they're normally given to people at random and a normal person would only have maybe one or two skills that have been, I guess, blessed on them. So he gets to pick five of whatever ones he wants. And he also gets his choice of magic attributes. So before picking his ranked skills, he gets clarification on the mission in terms of the importance or what she wants specifically. He asks, do you want me to kill the hero or is saving the world the most important thing? And she specifies that saving the world is the most important thing, but she does not believe that he can do that without killing the hero. So after he accepts the mission, he spends a bit of time looking through the different skills that are provided. And there's like a shit ton. And he kind of goes through the different ranks. And for the S rank, which is supposed to be a a level of skill that is possessed by one in a hundred million people. And the skill that he chooses for that rank is rapid recovery. Which is going to heal his body, his mana mana regeneration, his stamina, all of that is going to be S rank. His A rank skill, which is supposed to be 1 in a million, is an ability called Spellweaver, which allows him to create new spells. His B rank, which is 1 in 10,000, is Limitless Growth, which is, as he says, exactly what it sounds like, and the ability to grow his skills in a limitless fashion the c rank skill he chose which is one in a hundred is martial arts and then the d rank skill he he seems surprised that it's there like they don't tell us what the d rank skill is i personally think it's some shit like uh human ingenuity or the the will to never give up or some shit like that but he he sees it in D rank, and he's like, "That's there. The gods are truly fools, or some bullshit like that." And so he takes the uh, the five skill that he has, and then he chooses the out of six different elemental, uh, out of six different attributes. There are you know the four elemental: earth, wind, fire, and then water, I believe. And then there's a light and dark attribute. So he chooses the four basic element attributes and those five skills. And that is, that sounds like great and potentially OP as hell. But to put it in perspective, he contemplates the fact that given the, essentially what is being offered, the hero has basically 30 skills, five at least are S-rank, and the rest are most likely A-rank, at the, at the very least. And so after confirming his choices, the goddess starts his life as a new newborn child of the Tuohade family, which are an aristocratic family of assassins and medical practitioners, which, as the show progresses you see, kind of go hand in hand. His parents, Kion and Ezri, name him Lug, and his father promised his wife, Esri, to make sure that his son is skilled enough as an assassin to not get killed, because apparently before Lug was born, their previous son had died. And so then after that, they skip seven years into the future where Lug is training his physical abilities and practicing building up his store of mana and at this point he is not able to do magic yet because he's not allowed to doesn't have it and because he doesn't have a teacher but they do show as the episode progresses that he grows up in a very loving home with a family that dotes on him and Lug along with the training that he's getting from his father and the training that he knows as a previous assassin And the knowledge he uses from his previous life in the world. He does a lot of training and working to build his body up. Making sure it gets the proper nutrition. To the point where he basically invents cream stew into this world. Which is the healthiest thing that he believes he can make at this time. In order to get the proper amount of nutrients for his body. And it basically becomes so popular that his parents want to like share it with the rest of the territory that they govern. This episode also showcases how Luke's father is very precise and strict in his training to the point where Keon regularly, regularly uh, checks Luke's body and muscular growth and, changing, and changes his training regimen accordingly to make sure that his son is developing a body that is specifically designed for assassination. So after a a bit more training and kind of examining his son's skills he believes that his son is not ready to undertake this uh, family secret eye surgery which is meant to increase uh, his ocular vision as well as his depth perception and low light vision. And i think it also allows him to see magical aura and then after that as he's recovering and his mother really really shows how much she fucking loves her son and I'm, I'm sure she's loving in general she seems like the type to just be like a very loving individual but she's also like very i i think it also just like the loss of her previous son i think might have like kicked these feelings into overdrive and so luke is really kind of getting a lot of this extra shit from his mother and so then after his recovery he's able to finally see again uh he shows how his eyes are working he really he's got like this zoom feature in his eyes where he can while he's seeing far away he can look and see specifically people and things and creatures from far away distances and after having the success, successful surgery, is also finally granted uh, a magic tutor. And on the day that he meets her, his mother, God, her sweet, sweet soul, for some reason puts this dude in a dress and then stubbornly takes his clothes so he has to meet his tutor in this dress. And so then this is like the introduction by the end of the episode of Dia Via Cone who, like Lug, is a basically a genius child. Or at least that's what Lug's parents believe in a beast, is a genius child, which technically would be true. But we as the audience know that it's because of his past experiences that he seems to be catching on to things more quickly, or that he has more of a drive to understand things better in the world. But Dia is just a straight-up, genius at magic. She has a very large reserve of, of magic in her, which she kind of shows off after introducing herself. And it's really impressive because she's also allegedly three years older. So because Lug at this time is seven, she's basically a 10 year old genius sorcerer. then this leads into episode 3 where it's, the entire episode is basically Dia and Lug's tutoring sessions over a span of two weeks which is started off with uh, Dia testing Lug's magic capacity by giving him a what is known as a far stone and having him store his magic inside of it which ends up having explosive results because of all the years he had spent storing up and building up his own magical capacity and then at first after the incident dia thinks she's gonna get in trouble because that was something dangerous it seems like she's had students before and she understands you know an aristocrat's concerns of the well-being of their child but luke's parents are actually very proud to see that he has that much ability as a mage even if it's just like raw explosive magic power and it starts basically kind of just starts off kicks off from there Luke sees the potential in the far stones and he asks to see if he can get any more but apparently according to Dia they are a very rare and precious item that aren't just handed out and given freely and so after basically like the first day Dia sleeps in Luke's bed and uh, basically kind of declares herself as his big sister and this is like a very interesting scene mostly because it kind of it's the start of basically the these two bonding as friends and as mentor mentee and then also potentially as like a future not even like but as basically a future love interest for Luke. But when she brings up that he's or that she's his older sister, he kind of objects to being her little brother. And then Dia makes an offhanded comment about how his father is hiding it, which I think is a prank that she's putting on him. I think she's kind of messing with him a little bit. But then she kind of just brushes off and says it's her command as his mentor. And he kind of just goes with it. And then from there, uh, they start testing his magical attributes, which then she discovers that he has four magical attributes, which is incredibly abnormal, mostly because most people only have one. She, as a mage, despite her genius, only has two attributes, and it's rare for anyone to have more than two and so then she also teaches him how to access his different attributes starting with one that they share which is earth and upon getting acquainted with being able to tap into that attribute he gets his first spell which is to be able to create copper and from there he starts to learn how magic works and how usually spells are learned as revelations from god people don't just make up spells they are basically kind of not given visions, but the knowledge automatically pops into their head. And the more that they practice magic, the more spells come to them. Then, you know, they spend more time, more days with Lug practicing and getting used to spellcasting and reciting spells. And the more they get comfortable, the more they start trying to experiment. Because as he's, as he's learning basically how spellcraft works... He tries to lean more into getting, like, some of the writing and how magical runes, not how they work, but how they're translated. Basically trying to figure out how to write spells to incorporate his spell weaving ability. And then they they figure that out. But then there's, like, this weird trick to it where the girl, because she doesn't have the spell weaver ability... She can make it she could write down and create a spell, but she can't, quote unquote, create it herself or activate it herself without getting sick. He, as the person with the spellweaver ability, has to do it first before she's able to do it after. So then, after figuring this out all out, they start to create new magic together, and they also start to bond a bit more. Uh, one of the spells that they create together is what you see in the first episode, which is him basically inventing it, magically summoning a gun, and then being able to fire it. And they're basically just like, they're in the shape of rifles, essentially, so they make these, not small, but like sized enough to fit in children's hands. And then he works a little bit and ends up creating just, with the thought process of, I eventually have to use this shit on a hero, he creates a giant cannon and shoots and fires it off but again because he's still learning magic it's perfect and he doesn't think that's enough power to take on the hero or at least he's he he assumes so eventually this this kind of continues on throughout the entirety of the two weeks and then on their last night together before the end of the two-week training they exchange gifts lu gives dia a magically constructed knife and Dia gives Lug a far stone that is imbued with earth magic that she had been carrying around her neck. They then promise to see each other again, and after she leaves, Kian, Lug's father, decides to tell him the truth about the Tuohare. Not the truth that they kill people, but they, he basically takes him to this prison full of death row convicts, and this prison is essentially where the Tuohare hone their skills through medical techniques and uh, assassination attempts. They're basically experimenti- experimenting on death row convicts. And before one of Luke's tests that he's about to give in terms of teaching him to... This is basically his, Luke's first kill, essentially. But before he gets to do his first kill, he asks his father why he raised him in such a way to where he would want to hesitate to kill a person. And I brought up early in the first episode, uh, the first episode or when talking about the first episode, the different ideals that the better assassin had in his mind. It's because when you get to this episode and he asks this question to his father his father answers with a philosophy that is pretty much the exact opposite of what he had believed at first and also was a was an ideal that basically allows having emotions to work while being an assassin it's a it's a philosophy that's It's a philosophy of assassination that is very different than the philosophy of the organization Luke worked for in his past life. Basically tells him that as assassins, they are people and not tools. They don't just kill because of their order to. uh, They determine if a job that they're taking on will benefit the kingdom. And they ultimately need to understand why they're killing to begin with. He believes that it's important for them to do what they do with their hearts and minds intact. And they must have human values in order to read the minds of others. Keon basically believes that humanity is a necessary weapon for assassination. Which is... And all of that are things that Lug kind of gets, but he kind of doesn't. And I think... One, I, I think that idea is interesting. Especially since in a lot of media, there is, you know, there's that assumption that when you kill a person, you're basically tearing a piece of your soul. And because it is such an unforgivable sin that you are basically tearing away a part of yourself or tainting a part of yourself to do the deed, where with this line of thinking it's not necessarily the opposite but it is it is a, it's essentially just a counter ideal it's it's saying that in order for you to be able to kill effectively you need to have the heart of a human you need to understand not just how to do what you need to do but why you're doing it and i guess it's from that understanding that you can bring yourself to be able to do the deed in a sense I don't know if that's like a justification for killing but it, it is it's an interesting concept to think about I think and I feel like this this philosophy is definitely going to come up again especially when he is going to be face to face with the hero. Yeah, I think I think this is gonna be very important. But let me let me continue on because this is almost at the end of the third episode, where they continue on into this room, where uh, Kian presents Luke basically with his first kill, which is this nineteen-year-old woman who looks oddly a lot like Dia, which I think his father did on purpose to kind of as a way to psych his son out a bit and he kind of lists all of the multiple atrocities that this woman committed as she's sitting there begging for her life but Lug ultimately because of his past life shows no mercy he like chops off her arm or at least her hand allowing her to bleed out and basically kind of like lose not adrenaline but like basically feeling as she's like slowly starting to pass out from the blood loss that way that when he delivers the death blow it is painless for her it is efficient to the umpteenth degree but is also in a way a, a merciful killing and that's the, basically the end of the third episode oh there is one more thing i want to talk about their op So the opening song for World's Finest Assassin is Dark Seeks to Light by Yui Ninomiya. It is a very techno sounding song. That's the best way I can describe it. I'm not sure if it fits a specific genre outside of pop, but I like it so far. It took me a couple of episodes to get used to, but even when I first heard it, it immediately gave me It psyched me up is probably the best way I can describe that. It was one of those songs that definitely kind of got me hyped and excited for the episode to come. And it's a song that gets you moving for the most part. If you haven't seen this show, again, I suggest you go watch it. Or if you aren't sure, you want to listen to the OP to see what it sounds like, go look it up yourself. Again, it is Dark Seeks Light by Yui Minomiya. I'm running time on here. This is going a bit longer than I had intended. But yeah, the next time I discuss this, which I think I'm going to do, and I was talking about this in the last episode with Digimon Ghost Game, but I'm either going to wait until four through six are all out to talk about those episodes, or I'm going to combine talking about the next of this series episode, episode four, with Digimon Ghost Game Episode 4 and kind of talk about multiple different shows at the same time. I think that might, for one, it'll be easier for me to balance and kind of set up a an episode structure in which I can do this less times a week, I'm trying to catch up with, I'm trying to, I'm basically trying to just trying to catch up with a lot of things. And I don't want to fall behind in this. So uh, I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to go ahead and... uh, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to start up a campfire here. See if I can find some kindling. And uh, take a rest. So I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your time. And hope to see you in the next one.